Welcome to Freed Up. This is the podcast that makes life feel lighter. And if you're wanting to live freed up and not fed up, stay connected right here. Pull up your seat. Join us in this place where faith and mental health meet. Whether you're returning here or it's your first time, I hope you find this podcast as a useful resource to elevate your faith and mental health. Today, we've got a Q&A episode to answer questions that you're wondering about. So stay a while, all of you, for getting it started in just a moment. Hello, Freed Up friends and family. How y'all doing out there? Y'all shifting shame and stuff. <laughs> you know, this is really a thing, right? It is um, more than a notion to really dive into this area of shame and to really identify its grip and really some of the patterns that we've been operating out of. It can feel a little bit daunting and overwhelming. So I just wanted to start off today just asking you a few questions. So how many of you have felt or are feeling some discouragement in this process? Any hands raised? Um, What about challenges as you're trying to put some of these strategies in place? Or how many of you have felt a little bit of fear or trepidation in diving deeper into the shame spaces in your life? Has anybody just started and then stopped in frustration at having to put in this much work for what might seem like It's not your tab, but you're having to pay the cost. Now, I thought about this a little bit. And when I think about shame, sometimes it feels like it's somebody else's tab that they skipped out on and that we're the ones that are having to foot the full cost with interest. I hear you. I feel you. I get you. Because this is like a lot of the stuff that I felt, too, which is why I can say this. You are in good territory because all of that means that the voice of awareness is rising inside of you. And yes, you get to choose your responses. And these are daily choices that we get to make and how we respond. So I had a moment of reflection a few days ago where I was really like, okay, God, listen, can we just like zap some of this out of me? Because I got things to do, places to go and people to connect with, and ain't nobody got time for this. And so, well, God being who he is, he gave me an A to my Q. (laughs) And because he is so much wiser than me, he was like, my love, I'm with you on this necessary path in your growth. And y'all, isn't that just like God? (laughs) He knows us so much better than we know ourselves. And just in case you want to dive deeper into that, you can go to Psalms 139 and it will help you with that. But he knows exactly what I need. He knows what I need to accomplish, how I need to grow. And he knows the same for you. So we got to be patient in this thing as he walks us through this process of pruning and sanctification in our lives. Right. I want to go back to something, though, which is one of our framing scriptures from earlier this year. Galatians 6 and 9, can I just remind us of this one? It says, don't get tired or weary in doing well. For at the appointed time, at the right time, y'all, you will reap a harvest 
if you do not give up. So I just want to encourage all of us by saying, you know what, y'all? God is not zapping us. We have to endure. We have to keep doing the good work and doing well. That's what doing well means, doing the good work. And if we don't give up, despite all the disappointments and discouragements, all the starts and stops, God is going to allow us to see the blessing of the work that we put in. Yes, the emotions and the feelings get uncomfortable. I can tell you that. And the do-overs are aggravating. But we have to envision the reaping season. We got to dream about that promise that's not denied. And really, that's not even delayed. It's just stored up. I have to keep in the forefront of my mind that God is a promise keeper. And I am truly meditating on that thought in my freedom journey. So let's just see the process through. Um, because the process really is a blessing, even though it doesn't always feel like it. And it's not just the accomplishment, it's the process that we can celebrate too. All right. So just stay encouraged with that. And I just wanted to share that with you. Um, you are okay. You're good. You can do this. And we're going to do it together to the glory of God. All right. So let me tap into today's content. Um, I wanted to feature a guest, and I had mentioned that, and the scheduling just didn't work out. So today we're hosting our Q&A, and I want to focus on a couple of questions that surfaced for me to cover. And then I'll bring up an additional question at the end that will be a placeholder for our next episode. So first of all, thank you so much for sending your questions in. Here's the first one. Can shame be a positive thing in your life? So when I saw this, the first thing I thought was, "Woo, okay, this is such a great question. And I'm really excited about breaking it down because we often don't think about shame in that way. So listen, the thing about emotions is we have a multiplicity of them and all of them are part of our humanness. We don't get to pick emotions that show up for us. But we do get to pick our responses and our reactions to them. But all of us in our humanness would probably prefer to only feel these positive emotions, right? And let me just share what visually came to my mind a few minutes ago. I just envisioned like the show Jeopardy and me picking this category saying, you know what? I'll take positive emotions for 500, Alex. That would be my only choice if I had my way. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool just to have positive emotions all the time? Because they make us feel good, right? But the reality is that life is not one-sided in that emotion space. And we all know that. So we will feel we're going to live with and we're going to manage these other emotions that are uncomfortable and unwelcome, like anger and sadness, guilt and shame. These are equitable partners in the emotion world. And we don't like that, y'all, because who would, Right. But if we want to feel all of these feel-good emotions, then we're going to have to sign on for the hard ones as well. Our emotions are indicators. They are information. They are unselected data from us that emerges from things that happen around us, that happen to us, and that happen within us. So we need them, all of them. But that said, though, while the emotions and feelings that get labeled negative, like Anger, jealousy, frustration, disappointment, disgust. While those may have a bad reputation, 
they can be seen as catalysts that propel us into a positive place and lead us to healthier outcomes. They can be what I call frenemies and we can treat them as such. So I reach out to them like I would a friend if I want to learn something from them, but I don't want them to stick around because I wouldn't want an enemy to stick around, right? So shame can be a frenemy. It can be a springboard that really helps us move to this higher ground and a higher repurposed self. Now, I mentioned in the episode on shifting shame from the mental health lens that Dr. Joseph Burjo, who is a research psychologist, he said this, that shame has lessons to teach us if we let it. So shame can be this motivating force in our lives when it's used to help us reflect on harm that we may have caused to others or even to ourselves. And it is in this way that shame might evolve out of guilt that we feel about something that we did or something that we didn't do that we should have done and that affected somebody else. So let me back up a minute and just break down the difference in guilt and shame. Guilt is when we feel we've done something to someone and we feel bad about it. Shame is when we feel we're not lovable or enough or worthy of experiencing or having anything good in our lives. So shame is really a statement about who we are versus what we've done. And here's a practical example of how these two can be so closely aligned, but where shame can cause us to shift how we treat others in ourselves. So let's say a friend of yours betrayed you in some way. Their guilt about what happened may cause them to think a lot about what they've done and how it affected you. And they may really feel disappointed with themselves. They might be angry with themselves that they did what they did. Their guilt about what they did to you might cause them to seek out your forgiveness. They might try to reconcile the relationship with you and make things right. Now, where shame comes in is this. If that friend internalizes their action toward you by telling themselves, I am a disappointment to other people. I am a bad person because I've done something really hurtful to someone else. See, that narrative about who they are versus what they did to hurt you, that becomes their narrative and their shame story. So then in addition to the load of guilt that they feel and carry because of what they did to you, now they are carrying a load of shame, which affects them. So how this can become a lesson like Dr. Virgil talks about it in the the sense that shame can be a lesson for us is that this situation can be a springboard into something useful and a growth opportunity for that particular friend, right? Because that shame or them feeling ashamed can motivate them to make the situation right with you to the best of their ability. But here's something important to remember in the shame space, and this is going to be imperative for that friend in this scenario to recognize we all fail. We all make mistakes and hurt other people. Now, it doesn't justify the action at all, but this is going to help to really bring a humanizing, compassionate and loving approach in which that friend can forgive themselves and heal from any shame that they are internalizing from that failure. Remember, our actions do not have to become our identity. 
But we do need some level of conviction of guilt, y'all, from our unjust and wrong behaviors in order to have morality in ourself and in the world. We all know that, right? But if nobody feels guilty, no shame or remorse for what they've done that's wrong, then we would have an unlivable society. And some people feel like we're there now. But we can choose to put the shame outside of ourselves. That's what's important. We got to forgive ourselves and forgive others. And let me just say this from the faith perspective, forgiveness is foundational in the life of the believer. If you are a believer in Christ, it is the basis of our faith. We can't even get to God without asking for his forgiveness for our wrongdoing and asking for it from others. Just think about the Lord's Prayer as evidence of this. But for those who are not believers in Christ, of course, certainly we always invite you to connect with him. But sometimes that concept of forgiveness can be challenging to embrace and extend. And in that sense, they'll have to think about what that means to help them address the guilt that they feel for wrongs that they may be responsible for. So the short answer to your question really is this. Ultimately, shame as a positive or motivating factor is possible, but it can happen only when you identify how it shows up and respond to it in a way that helps to right the wrongs that have happened, but also at the same time externalizes that wrong and extracts it from your core identity. Okay, so that was a pretty detailed answer. And um, actually, it was a great question and one that I'm glad came up because I do think it's important that we know that emotions need to be viewed through a two-sided lens. Whenever possible, we need to explore both sides of that. All right, here's the next question. Can you explain more about how shame forms in our childhood and then carries on into our adult relationships? All right, so now this response could be a whole episode by itself, but I'm going to try to unpack it briefly because we do have some other episodes that are already archived that will shed a lot of light into answering this question. All of our life experiences are continually shaping our perceptions of ourselves, but none more impactful and influential than those from our earliest years. So there is some research that suggests that by the age of two years old, that our inner mapping as children has already happened the way that we're going to see the world, whether we see it as safe or unsafe. And so within the episodes that we featured on attachment, we spent a lot of time talking about how the relational interactions with our caregivers and other influential figures in our childhood development create these neural expectations or our brain wiring, and they largely determine how we're going to engage relationally with others throughout our lifetime, unless there's intervention, of course. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, I would really encourage you to start there because there are going to be some really important insights about attachment that you'll find there. And when we talk about attachment, which is an evidence-based theory, we talk about it in terms of secure and insecure attachment styles. So in particular, when insecure attachments are happening, the child is receiving a level of messaging that causes them to feel unsafe, unloved, unseen, and or rejected. And so these messages get internalized by children who don't yet have a fully developed prefrontal cortex part of their brain 
And so they can't effectively discern what is true about them and what is not. And so then they will simply interpret adult behaviors and messages as their own. They will accept the adult's messages about them that are not generally rooted in the truth of who they are as children, but rather those actions and behaviors and narratives are rooted in the shame narratives and the behavior of those who raise them and care for them. So I need you to really grab that. And that's how the perpetration of generational imprinting happens. And these messages create shame stories when they are rooted in a continued deficit messaging to that child. So for most adults who I see in therapy, and you know what, even for myself, many of the current behaviors, defense strategies and mechanisms that we really struggle with, like perfectionism, avoidance, anxiety, and the list goes on. These are all outgrowths of the neural pathways that developed in our childhood, and they get continued into our adult experience. Um, a practical example of this is, let me share about a particular client that I have, and I've seen him for about five years. He's an adult male, and he's really struggled with major complex trauma throughout the course of his lifetime. And after about two years of sessions, he was able to tap into this connection between his childhood shame and adult relationships. He talked about not being allowed to express emotions as a child when he was hurt or if he had a need. And he was told what he should feel and how he should respond. As he described it, if he was feeling angry, then his caregiver would tell him, I know you'll fix your face. You know you're feeling okay about this because they wanted to put him as a child in a space where he wasn't displaying what they deemed as negative emotions. And so he also talked about being pushed away by his caregiver if he asked multiple times for something that he thought was just a basic need. And he said he was even punished when he might express that need. He could remember hearing statements and phrases like, stop acting like a pussy. You know, other statements that would be similar to that would be something like man up. And so the story that he carried throughout his lifetime and into his adult relationships was this. I'm not worthy of having my voice heard. I don't deserve to ask for anything I need or I want. And I don't feel loved enough to have my own identity because someone else was telling him who he was and what he should feel. And so he talked about not really knowing who he was as a person. And of course, all of this affected his ability to express his emotions as an adult in adult relationships. And so then things would just happen to him. He felt like, hey, he didn't have any power. He would let things just go until he didn't let it go, right? And then he would blow up and he would feel resentful. And so he's talked a lot about having anger and taking that out on other people, and especially in his romantic relationships. Thankfully, the therapy space has helped him understand more about his attachment experiences in childhood and how they shaped these shame stories for him. And so now he's working through understanding the impact of that and how he can now shift shame and really 
start to rewrite his story. So I appreciate that question because there is a huge link between the two and there's work to be done to intervene in those experiences we had in childhood and how they show up in adult relationship. Which brings me to this third question that I want to conclude with. And I really want to use this as a starter kit because our next episode, we're going to dive all the way into how do you rewrite and restore your shame narrative? So what does it mean to rewrite? your shame narrative. So I'm going to leave us with this. And actually, this is a phrase from Anne Lamott, who is a nonfiction writer. She's an activist and a public speaker and one of my favorite people to quote because she has such amazing quotes. But one of the things that she talked about is a term that she coined that's abbreviated SFD. It stands for shitty first draft. Okay, so for the non-spicy folks out there who don't subscribe to any use of curse words, I get you, I'm quoting her, but I think we can substitute in that S sloppy first draft and it's going to convey the same significance, okay? But the SFD is really about the incomplete, incoherent at times, disconnected writing that can happen on the front end of a major work or novel. And so at the root of this terminology really is the belief that most works of art or anything of value begin in a format that often doesn't look good and doesn't start with perfection. SFD is the initial work that is created before these multiple steps of editing and revisions. And, you know, I started thinking Our shame stories could be referred to as SFDs, right? Because they are mostly formed in and through some of our early life experiences. And they might be perpetuated over our lifetime through and within our adult experiences. But here's the good news in all this, y'all. SFDs are drafts. They are not the finished product. They can be changed at any time and edited, and that's the whole point of them in the first place. However you refer to your SFD, whichever S word you use, know that what we hold on to as shame narratives that show up in our thinking as SFDs, we get to rewrite them. And this is the work that takes time and support, y'all. It is worth it, though. So, Again, in our next episode, we're going to dive deeply into how these stories can be rewritten and reframed. And that is the power of neuroplasticity. That is the power of what the word says is taking thoughts captive and bringing them subject to the knowledge of Christ so we can begin to say who we are, our identity based upon what he says. I promise y'all don't want to miss this episode. We're going to drill down to it. Invite somebody else to listen because changing and shifting our SFDs, our shame stories are the most powerful part of our experience. Remember, our headspace is holy space. It's sacred space. Whatever we let sit up there and stay up there is how we will live our lives. We got work to do, y'all. We're going deeper. And remember, y'all, you do not walk this path alone. I'm walking right alongside you as well as the rest of the Freed Up friends. And don't forget, God loves you. I love you. And make sure you take care of you.